Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Fiction. Science fiction. Horror. Fantasy. Crime. LGBT. Thriller. You have now entered the House of Mystery with your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino, John Copenhaver, and Al Warren. 106.5 FM Los Angeles, 102.3 FM Riverside, and 105.0 AM Palm Springs. Welcome back into the House of Mystery. I'm Al Warren, of course, and Mr. Michael Hawley. It should be Tuesday, but it's not. (laughs) I know. I screwed it up, Al. So uh, at least it's Wednesday. Wednesday, Hawley, this time. Yeah, Wednesday, Hawley. Well, it's all a blur anyway. Uh, this this (laughs) time of year everything's crazy you know i get so caught up i was you know you're working i'm writing and doing shows and all of a sudden and i run into the store the other day and all of a sudden i see all this christmas stuff up (laughs) where did that come from it was just summer it was just summer what's what's going on goes fast i'll tell you it it does it's really kind of strange when you're away from it um (laughs) you know it just it just made me want to stay home. And then of course I get some sort of diseased cold from someone, you know, some pushy shopper, you know. See, I told you that old lady that you were ripping that toy away from. Yeah, that, she had it. I'm telling you. <laughs> well, she'll never know. She she got pushed down and knocked out. She won't know. I told her my name was Mike Holly. So that's okay. That's okay. Yeah. I always part of my yeah, yeah. part of my image. Yeah, of course. You know, you can wear a suit all you want. It doesn't matter. Well, okay, let's jump into it today. We've got uh, an interesting author here, one that's writing uh, mystery books. Um, so let's bring him in. And his newest book, I guess, is Angel Falling, which comes out here in early December, so it's just about this time of airing. So, Indy Peril, thank you for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Nice speaking with you. So, Indy, you, I noticed your your uh, photos, like uh, you got your eyes covered. So uh, you're, who are you, who you running from? Uh, anybody that's chasing me, to be honest with you. <laughs> yeah, I like to uh, keep my private life private and keep my public life public. 
well, that's that's good, you know. Have separate entity, you know, as long as you don't get them mixed up. <laughs> what what gets you? Is it recovering academic? Sorry, sorry for your loss. And, <laughs> and it, so, what brought you into doing novels like this and um, doing a mystery and thriller and stuff like that? Like, what's how did you get there? Yeah, well, I always wanted to to write fiction, um, and you know, when I grew up in a midwestern city. Um, not unlike, and which I used as the basis for Central City. I came, I grew up working class and I grew up in a background uh, that, you know, in a part of the city that had a pretty high crime rate and was able to get some academic opportunities that were unexpected. And it wasn't something that, you know, like um, where I grew up, you didn't necessarily go to college, you know, and, and that wasn't really a, a path that people assumed. And when I did and worked my way through college and then had opportunities to go to graduate school and, it seemed, you know, like everything was roses. You know, I brought to that world certain expectations, certain things that I thought working with ideas was going to be, and um, and I just didn't have any experience with adults that worked in that world. And so it led me to a certain degree of disillusionment. I have a lot of friends who are academics or who are former academics or who, you know, dabbled in graduate school or whatever, and I don't think that my experience is, is that uncommon, uh, maybe where I grew up. You know, I didn't know a lot of people in academia that came from that background, but um, I know a lot of people who are disillusioned with it. And so um, it's funny that, you know, putting recovering academic on my bio does gets noticed, interestingly enough. And a lot of people either have similar experiences with that or it just draws their eye. And right. for, for me, you know, getting away from that, but still being able to use the ideas that I worked with as an academic in interesting ways and personal ways, it seemed like fiction was an opportunity to do that. And specifically mysteries and detective novels um, allow me to engage in some of those ideas that I think are important and were central to my work when I was younger. Yeah, totally. I understand that. I relate to that. And, and mystery and this whole area is sort of, it, it ties in really good with academia, actually. It's just, the, the whole concept of it and the greediness of your characters are very relatable to academia. <laughs> I mean, a few people calling me on that one, but um, that's okay. Uh, so now you mentioned Central City. So in a way, Central City is kind of the basis of where this is all going on, your story. And that is kind of taken from your own city that you grew up with in a way. It's meant to be like the archetype the archetypal American city. You know, if you go into rural areas of the U.S., you know, people will have ideas about the city that they see on the news and they think about crime and, like, urban crime and ghettos and things like that. You go to a city and you meet the people there and they'll have different perceptions on what that means for them and how that fits into their imagination and their worldview. And with, you know, as, as you kind of mentioned, the idea of mysteries, you can take, you can pose a question through the construction of the mystery of the crime at the center of the novel and then tease that out, right? To find the implications that it has for the characters, implications that it has for the victims, for um, the people related to the victims and for the killer or um, the criminal. And the ability to do that in a setting that we, you know, the television projects in a certain way or handful of different ways that we see in film and cinema in certain ways to be able to play that out and to do it in a way that's personal to me, right? Like the city and urban environment, the smells, the, the 
way that a sidewalk looks, the way that like streets and alleyways look and how they feel when you're driving through them and how you can shift, you know, from one block to the next, you might be in a completely different environment. And the ability to kind of build that out and relate it to the to the narrative arc, that's what fascinates me about that setting. Right. So in a way, you have to write um, your city as a character. Yeah. And it does, it does have its own character arc. So one of the projects I'm currently working on, um, hopefully uh, to bring to fruition next year, is the origin story of Central City. Like going back into the 19, early 19th century and building out that story of the native population that lived there, you know, the European settlers that are arriving and how those cultures clash. And in Angel Falling, which, you know, as you mentioned, is coming out here early December, that's tied into that origin story. So it's meant to be a contemporary, it actually takes place in 1984, um, but it's meant to be sort of a, a recent, con- recent version of that origin. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. 
For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The story played out um, with an 80s sensibility. If, if that's what you call the 80s. <laughs> yeah, so it's like a prequel then? Yeah, it's a prequel to Central City and, and Journeyman, um, the two novels that are um, that, that both have Ken Culpa and Vincent Bayonne, my two protagonists. Uh, Angel Falling is Vincent Bayonne's first murder mystery when he switches. He was originally a narcotics detective um, and switches over to homicide. And this is his first homicide story. So he's adjusting to his background in narcotics and his disillusionment with being able, you know, being unable to, to build cases that were solid enough to make a difference. And he's looking for a way to make a difference, um, in the city and his, in his own life. In that way, by paralleling the origin story of Central City, he's also engaging in the, whether or not the city can redeem itself, right? Whether the city can find redemption through the scars that that occurred in its in its moments of birth. So a lot of this, the the emotional tie to this is sort of related to your own life in a sense. Like you talk about the dis- disillusionment and stuff of your of your detective, almost toward it, it kind of correlates with you and yourself and and academia in a sense. I'm right on that, right? Absolutely. And it, I mean, it's you know, as you know, you know, it's hard not to bring yourself into your work and and you. You know, at least I have a tendency to um, use it as a way to to get over certain things and to realize what it really means to me, you know? Right. Well, that's therapy for you. And at the same time, it makes it makes the character real. It makes what happens real because it's coming from real emotion from the writer. Yeah, absolutely. And with it's interesting because with Kane Culpa, um, who I actually share more um, background with, he is... In certain ways, like my id playing out, right? He's he's um, a version of myself that is maybe a little bit um, in the moments when he doesn't, when feeling does him no good, he does not feel, right? I can't I can't claim that for myself, <laughs> certainly. But and and all my work is about compassion, right? It's about um, the greediness that you mentioned earlier. To me, is a part of reality. But and we have to in order to find paths to compassion. We have to embed that compassion in that reality as we understand it. But Vincent Bayonne, the police detective, is a true believer, right? He's an idealist and he struggles with finding ways to make his ideals work, to make them play out in the world around him. And, and as a policeman, right, he's surrounded by people in their worst moments. He's surrounded by crime and, and, you know, degradation in certain ways. And, he doesn't have a direct sense of his ideals being a part of the reality around him. And that is absolutely me coming to terms with that as, as a, like a former academic, as, you know, someone who wanted to do that. Is Kane Culpa the career criminal? Yes, he is, yeah. 
Oh, is that your other side of you? Yeah, yeah that's, that's definitely <laughs> my it, for sure. Yeah, and I mean, it was, you know, growing up where I grew up, like, it's just hard not to get into trouble, you know, and I was in, in and out of trouble until I was 21. Ah, okay. Right, yeah, part of, part of the life. So your characters then, your, your, your main characters, what is your relationship with your characters? How do you work with them or see them or how does it work for you to write about them in a book? I mean, like I said, Kane is definitely my id, and there are ways in which I can play out a level of coldness, a level of validation in him as a character, while at the same time, because he's, he's honestly, he's a decent person, as far as, I, as far as I'm concerned. Um, you know, readers might think differently. I consider him a decent person, and, and I'm trying to bring that decency and compassion out of him and put him in positions where it's constantly being tested. For Vincent Bayonne, I, I would argue that he is weak. His inability to, to confront what reality actually is and the fact that it's not the way that he wants it to be is, I think, in interesting ways, a form of weakness. But I don't know, isn't that a form of weakness that we all share, right? Like, isn't that the psychical shadow? And, yeah, and playing that out and, and letting him confront those things and then struggle in the ways that he needs to struggle because he's an alcoholic. You know, I think that that's, there's a certain catharsis to that as well. Research. How much research are you doing to, to fill in the times? I mean, some of it, of course, you were alive, but then you're talking about going back a long time. Are you, are you spending a lot of time working on, on research and that, and really that being, uh, being detectives and you're talking about narcotics to, to crime and all this stuff like this. How, how do you, how do you get into that? Yeah, I, I love this question. Um, whenever an interviewer asks me this question, I, I absolutely love it. And I feel like I never answer it the way that I want. So I'm going to give it, I'll give it my best here because I do, I, I do a lot of research and with, there are certain expectations that a reader brings to, that I bring when I read, you know, police procedurals and mysteries and crime fiction. And there are expectations we have about the verisimilitude, right? And I think that, you know, you have to do the research to get that right, to make it real. At the same time, it's not my project to show my readers and my audience what it means to be a policeman, right? My project is to tease out the philosophical ideas at the heart of the crime, and to show them, to show that psychologically, to show that through narrative. And so there are ways that I'll twist things to my own purposes, hopefully without betraying trust, because I know how important that is. And I experienced that again as a reader. In terms of the time period, there is, um, like dealing with the 80s, there's a certain vibe that I want to create, right? There's a certain tone that I want to create and central city takes place in 92 journeyman takes place in 93 and in those early 90s there's a different tone that i'm trying to create them from the 80s and so there's research that you have that i have to do in terms of you know automobiles and ways of bridging like in 84 i'm bridging the 70s to into the 80s right in the early 90s i'm bridging the late 80s to that early 90s period and everything is like a little bit behind our expectations right and and memory can be a funny thing because you know 
some of this I did live through it, as you mentioned, and but I can't rely on that, right? I have to the tonality, the vibe, the the way that I'm trying to carry out the development of the city and the way that it feels is more important to me than creating markers that are necessarily going to be emblematic of the 80s. But it's not a VH1 behind the scenes, like, like 80s <laughs> episode, right? <laughs> it's, it's more of a music video from that time period in certain ways. Well, you know, that's, it's interesting. When you, when you started, like, you, so you've got these main characters running through all of these books here that you've got. So did you come up with the concept, the idea, the story first, and then put the characters in, or did you have these two characters and maybe some more already created in your mind? and you wanted to put them through this. So the concept of the city came first, and the the way that I wanted to create and develop that setting and that tonality. And then I, from that, I had ideas that I wanted to plug in and play out of that. And the idea of having the two characters on either side of the law, that grew out of the question of, you know, how am I going to bring this together? How am I going to... Um, pose these questions and, and make it into an interesting narrative, right? And how, and what does it mean for a narrative? And then at that point, right, once you have those characters and you have a rough baseline for a story, then any sense of the ideas gets tossed out the window and you're looking at the narrative arc, right? And how you construct that and how, and you have the, the crime, right? At the center of it. And it was the crime and, and, figuring out the crime and working backwards through that that brought the story together, right? That, that brought the characters to life. So in a way, it's almost like sci-fi world building. You're creating a world, putting people into it, and then situation. But the situation is more about more about a, a, a meaning. There's like a subtext. There's some sort of you're trying to, like you were talking about philosophy. So there's kind of an idea that you're writing as a crime and how, how it's reacted to within the city. Am I right in that? You're exactly right, yeah. And it's it's a little bit like a water balloon, you know, where you, as you fill it up and you fill it up, if you're putting too much pressure in one area or another, it gets distorted. But if you get it balanced, then you can see the, the entirety of it, right? I don't know if that's a great metaphor or not, but that's what came to mind. Well, that's interesting. It's just uh, how far do you want to go with this? And like, where do you, where do you see, see this whole journey going? I don't exactly know myself. I, I have five books for, uh, Culpa and Down that I'm one more that is almost completed and is slated for, for publication next spring. Two more after that that I have in draft form. And I don't, I know where I want that arc to end, right? I know where I want the city to go through these two characters. And I mentioned the origin story that I'm also working on. I I don't know how much I want to do in between. I've done quite a bit of work just sort of developing their backstories and so on and so forth and putting all of that together in order to, to fill out the characters. But I don't know how much I want to get into telling those stories. I don't know. I mean, there's just, there's a lot that I could do with it. And I don't know... Uh, excuse the play on words, but how do you connect the non sequitur to that? I mean, it's like, uh, you, is that how, how, how you think? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, so I, that's funny. 
so yeah, my my, <laughs> my nonfiction on on indiepro.com on my personal website, my author website, is is just a place for me to put out you know essays on on things that have sparked my imagination, art, concerts, music, uh, books that I'm reading, things that are inspiring me, and so forth. And it's just a way for me to explore some of those ideas that are influencing my work. And then okay. my newsletter is Perro's Prism. Um, and so the, those essays, excuse me, on the website are called Speaking of non The My newsletter is called Perro's Prism, and it's where I take one theme, develop that theme in like a really short handful of paragraph essay, and then tie that through both my fiction and my nonfiction. Yeah, the idea there is that these are the ideas that drive my work, right? These are the the philosophical ideas or the concepts that are um, motivating me and pushing me in one direction or another. And it it to me, and at least in my mind, it all links back. It's all like a web, like Indra's net, where when you put pressure one place, it wobbles. So in, in how in the underlying uh, philosophy uh, you were you're discussing this continental philosophy yeah you know kind of your French and German um, philosophy which was I, I studied that's what I studied in graduate school and the difference you know between that and like anglo-american analytic philosophy is a bit of a sense of direct engagement at least in my way of thinking where as opposed to coming up with answers you know and in like in today's, like in the publishing world today, you know, there's all the stuff about chat GPT and artificial intelligence and so forth. And, and, you know, algorithms are so influential, but the idea there is that they're providing you with the answer, right? They're bringing everything to a single point of connection and it's, and funneling everything, right? Whereas, and to my way of thinking, continental philosophy is one great way of responding to that. Because it demands that you see everything as being relative, right? So it expands the way that we're, there isn't necessarily a right answer. Everything is just in relationship to everything else. And when you shift that relationship, the total composition shifts as well. So um, when you're writing the story, stories, <laughs> when you're putting this together, do you, do you have any much violence and much sex and, and all that? Or is it just completely all in the mind and kind of a suspense tension sort of. No, man, there's, there's violence and sex for sure. It's, it's, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, I mean, it's described as gritty and, and, and I think that that's accurate. I don't, um, I don't fetishize violence uh, in my books or in my mind. So there isn't, it doesn't play out in that way, right? It doesn't play out in, in the sense that I don't put readers in a situation where they have to sit with that, violence and the emotions that that brings up it's the violence is consequential but it's yeah it's all over it's all over and it's drugs too and it's all the good stuff man all the good stuff is in there. right but you're <laughs> conscious of how you're writing it like you're right. not just throwing it out there you're just kind of you put it it's there for a reason yeah and everything yeah hopefully everything in all of my books is there for a reason when you're writing the dialogue how do you do that? Like dialogue between your characters and stuff. Are you, um, do you act it out in your head? Do you hear it? Do you, do you hear your characters actually as they go through the dialogue? Do you, how, how do you run through it so that it's realistic? Yeah, I do. And I, I in my head, Vincent Bayonne is a little bit more of a cowboy, 
and not necessarily like a Western twang, but it's, but maybe it's just a little bit, but it's like, he's a little bit more of a easygoing figure. Um, whereas there's like a stoicism to Kane. And yeah, I hear it in my head. Um, I do read it out as well, out loud, um, act it out a little bit. You dress up like the characters and I, I, I don't, <laughs> well, not as far as I'm going to admit on the radio. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's okay. You dress up like him. You you act, act like him. You go out there and you, do you use like real real character, like people that you really know as the basis of some of your characters? Sometimes, sometimes, yeah. Um, I mean, everything gets changed and and you know has to conform to the narrative and has to conform to what the story demands and and what's going on there. So nothing is is ever that close to reality, but I definitely have used, you know, things that, things that happened to me or that I did, or that, that was, you know, the, a story that happened to friends of mine or something like that, but jazzed it up. Right. But made it, and then, and made it fit the situation. Right. But it's, I think that there's a way of making things have a level of unexpected truth to them. Right. Not just so that they, they feel true, but there's a way of, finding that nugget in reality that is it's the thing that fits that you didn't expect that you would never see on TV. Right. It's like the, you know, like if you get on the bus, right. People are way uglier than they are on, on primetime television. Right. I know. I keep getting so disappointed. You <laughs> I know. know. I go to the grocery store and everyone, they don't look like they do on TV. How come everyone's so happy? Right. Exactly. <laughs> and their lives are so less dramatic. But bringing that nugget of reality to it, I think, is something that you have to, that you can really only do by connecting it to that experience. Well, we, we want some names and that phone numbers <laughs> that you've used, and then we can get them on the line now, and then you can have a big argument. So that's good radio, right? That's good. No, but I mean, is, is there someone like, because I've had writers tell me that, um, and you know, not only real big writers and also real first-time writers, and they have the same thing. They go out to the grocery store, someone cuts them off in line, or they say something rude, and they've taken that character, the concept of that person or that, that, that's been rude to them, made them into a character and had them killed off or in some bad situation and stuff. Do you ever draw from that, that experience? No. Oh, too bad. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing better than finding that terrible person that does awful things, and they end up in the basement with a rat eating them or something. I don't know. <laughs> I just, See, just so Andy, Andy, you can tell Al works on, uh, you know, writes about serial killers, killers a lot. So. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah, well, it's just, it's just, it's nice to see something. It makes you feel good, but in a sense, see, because like I love the uh, gritty noir um, because it's realistic. You know, the people are who they are. They, there's, there's some good people. Sometimes they don't always do good things, or they do things that they have to at a time, and it's not always right. You know, there's all that. There's reality. That's all great. But do you ever have any resolve in 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 your story uh, throughout? Is there any sort of happy endings besides at the massage parlor? I mean, is there some sort of a, <laughs> no? Do you know what I'm saying? Is do. there anything do. that does turn out good? Um, you, you know, because I don't know that you not in the way that you're not in that sort of 
Mm-hmm. Like nobody, there's, yeah. There's resolution, right? But it never comes, and I have no intention of ever bringing it to a point where everything is happy. I just don't see the world that way. And that, to be like to link these two questions together, if I may. This is why I never have rats eating the face of the person who cut me off in line. Because of the same reason that I'm never going to bring a level of resolution that is a happy ending where the world has been righted, where the world has been placed back on on a solid footing. Because I just don't see the world in that way. I, I agree with that in a sense because I also I, I don't see that the world ever has been that way. Yeah. Like, cause there's so much, you know, where people, you see, I'm working on a stuff from the 60s right now. So all I do right now is my, my TV. I'm watching what's my line from 1960. <laughs> Everything's, everything is 1960. So I, that's the only way I can really get into why people are acting, reacting, say things, do things, how they behave and what they believe is going on at the time. That's the only way I can get myself into that place where it's realistic. But I think that. Even then, they said things are not like that. You know, they were complaining about the rock music and stuff and Elvis. And there was things to them they thought the world was was going to hell, and so so to speak. I think it's always been that way. I think there's always all of this stuff that we have to deal with. It. It's not really. It's not pretty. We make it that way, but it isn't really pretty. And uh, I don't think it's changed. I think maybe the people have changed like the names, but it's still the same problem. We read, we read our expectations for the future back onto our past. And it's like this weird form of sanitization, right? Like, like if you think about uh, Led Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven, right? If I'm hearing that song correctly, the song is about a prostitute, right? It's about a prostitute who is trying to bridge the gap between the world that she lives in and the paradise that she desires. Right. And maybe that's just I mean, because that's sort of what some of my work is about. Right. Like it deals with prostitutes and it deals with that type of lifestyle. And so maybe that's just my way of interpreting that song. But that song you hear like it wouldn't be weird to hear that at like an eighth grade graduation party. Right. Or something like that. Like that song is completely sanitized and it's made. It's considered, you know, utterly, utterly mainstream. And it's a, one of the greatest rock songs of all time. Don't get me wrong. But we don't hear the contents of that song when we hear the song anymore, right? When we, when we look back on those historical periods, we don't hear the way in which it was being experienced. We hear our expectations. And to, to shove a knife in that and twist, to me, is way more satisfying than to create you know, then to have the rats eating the face of the guy who cut me off, right? Then to, then something that would be wrathful in that sense, which is wrath is a concept. I bring that up because it's a concept in Angel Falling, the book that's coming out here in December. And, and it's, it's the way that the police, it's questioning the way in which police or policing functions as a form of wrath. And yeah. And I, I think putting pressure on the way we conceptualize as opposed to the way we actually sing. That's what interests me. So this is a really happy, happy series. Yeah, man. I'm, I'm like, I'm here myself, and I'm starting to worry. <laughs> yeah, he's got, he's got bodies in the basement. And rats, rats eating them right now. Just, just you know, for the, 
minute excitement of you know. I miss a while I work, happiness. man. To me, this is all fun. I don't know. It just comes out raw. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think I think it's great. I think it's it's I think it's realistic. I think that which we I think in society we find ourselves falling in and out of all the time. You know, we we like the things to look good and pretty and 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 all be happy and rosy but a lot of times it's not so rather than to ignore it or deny it we sometimes need to face it you know i think and work through it but uh, i don't think it's an ending I, I don't think it really ever ends i think it just keeps on going so and it has its own beats yeah. and cycles yeah for sure okay let's bring out the crack let's get this over with. <laughs> You know, slit my wrist now, bleed out in the tub. No, so so where do you, what what do you, what kind of things uh, do you enjoy yourself that go into this? Is, is there some? Is there love involved? Is there some real feelings um, that you carry into this book yourself? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely um, there's definitely love, and in the sense of we can all we can find resolution in our own individual ways. I don't I don't think it's 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 for me to say what that is for anybody else, but I think that teasing that out and engaging that allows us to feel better in the moment. And it, you know, it's a cathartic process for me, but I'm also bringing into play a lot of my relationships and, you know, friendship is really important to me. Being in nature is really important to me. Um, the energy of the city is something that I absolutely love. Music is something that's why I went with the Led Zeppelin example, right? Music is something that I absolutely love and I'm incredibly passionate about. I, I think that, you know, going to a concert is one of the few remaining community events that is a real raw, like visceral community event where the entire crowd is into something together and they're sharing that experience and there are ritual aspects to it. And all of that goes into my work, right? I, I, I try to bring um, a certain amount of musicality to the way that I create background um, and have music coming up and cropping up at different moments and different scenes in my work and the relationships between people. You know, I think, I think everybody cares about one another in the ways that they can. And I think that that's a reasonable way to approach interpersonal relationship. I think that that's an honest way of doing that. And that is maybe one of the most important things in my life. So experiencing the last, let's say, oh, I don't want to say 10 years, but it's, it seems like that. But um, <laughs> since 16 on, you know, the yeah. um, weird events that we've gone through. And, and, you know, not just, you know, the orange monster, but the, the I'm thinking of pandemic and I'm thinking of not even the event themselves, but how people are reacting to the things that go on. Does that sort of change how you write or do you think that influences how you write or does it make it darker for instance do you think or what's your thoughts on that i think it's definitely motivated me um because i i think that i think we've handled things incredibly poorly across the board and we haven't we haven't you know as a culture and as a society we haven't taken the time to think you know why are I may disagree with these people or those people right. or these other people, right. but why are they behaving in the way they're behaving? Why are they seeing this the way that they're seeing it? Why are they responding in this way? And conversely, of course, why am I? 
right? Like, why do I, 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 the, the pandemic is an interesting one, I think, because we didn't know what to do, right? We didn't know what was going on and we didn't know where to turn to understand it better. And I think that, like, if you think about the internet, the internet didn't create a crisis of authority. It exposed a crisis of authority that was already inherent in publishing, right? The publishing industry had, and to a certain degree, though a lesser perhaps degree, had developed its own definition of authority, right? And validated that process, and in certain ways still does, right? There are a lot of famous examples of ways in which, of, of incidents that belied that, right? That, that eroded the grounding on which that process of publication was done. And you have all kinds of propaganda, you know, throughout history and so forth. But the internet made that ubiquitous and it made it, and it made it available to the common individual so that they didn't have to go through the process of having it vet or having another special interest support that. So while we as individuals struggle more to determine what we understand to be accurate, to find answers that resonate with ourselves, I don't know that the context changed, like we were talking about earlier. And that, to me, is motivating. And the way that the pandemic played out, the way that so much nonsense in a relatively short period of time played, not only played out, but affected all of our lives, like in incredible ways. That, to me, is motivating. And the only answer that I know, just, you know, because of what, the way that my life played out and the way that I went from one environment to a completely different environment to the environment that I'm in now, the only answer that I have is, is breathing life into culture, right? The way that literature and fiction plays out and exists culturally as, as a form of direct engagement. That's the only answer I know. And, and the only one that I am equipped to provide, you know, as, as my own minor contribution. Like not as not necessarily as like an idealistic contribution, but that's what I have, and that's what I can give. Is that it? That's it. <laughs> that's it. Well, I'm disappointed. Is that it? That's all I can. Not, not, my God, I'm just going to bleed out now. That's it. <laughs> well, anyway, so listen. Um, speaking of concerts and live action and all that, so you know, do you do social media? Do you hang out online? You have, uh, where do people, where do you want people to find you? Bars, cocktail <laughs> lounge? I mean, I think that the best places are my websites. Uh, IndiePero.com, you know, is my author website, and that's where you can um, find my nonfiction, the Speaking of Non Sequiturs. You can also, you know, sign up for my newsletter there. Um, CentralCityBooks.com is a great place to explore the world of Central City, the neighborhoods, the characters, um, and see the different, the different books that I've that I put out and you can also sign up for my newsletter there. I am available, you know, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or X as they call it now, tickety talk, all that good stuff. You can find me there too. Oh, ticket. You're on TikTok. Are you on there, you know, putting on a show? Uh, no, it's, it's like uh, book trailers and like uh, graphic design type stuff, but that's interesting. Oh, it's great. You know, yeah. The internet has some good stuff too. Um, well, okay. So your books, some of them are out now, and you've got Angel Falling coming out early December. Our guest, Indy Peril. Thank you for being here. 
Yeah, thanks, guys. Thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.